Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is June the 29th, 2022, and the news is all still about January 6th um, after the testimony of Cassidy Hutchinson at the January 6th um, uh, select committee event. Uh, people, I think, in the United States are still reeling about what she said about Donald Trump's involvement in leading an armed mob. Uh, she's become quite a, a folk hero, this young woman who, as it happened, actually worked for the Trump administration. Um, we all, of course, remember January 6th. Some of the images are etched, burned onto our consciousnesses, especially, I think, the image of the man with the Confederate flag uh, in, the, in the White House who uh, eventually pleaded guilty. Uh, but certainly the, the, the undertones of, of racism are, are quite evident in this January 6th uh, investigation. Uh, Shay Moss has... Uh, been uh, talking to the committee, uh, as well as um, her mother, Ruby Friedman, both African-American election workers. We did a show yesterday, actually, with uh, Mark Bowden and Matt Teague on the resilience of American democracy and the kind of pressure people like Freeman and, uh, and uh, Shay came under their book, um, The Steel is Important. I'm not sure what Bowden and Teague think about the racial implications of the riot, but certainly my guest today on the show, I think, believes that the mob at the Capitol, and I'm quoting a piece he wrote in the Washington Post from uh, January 7th, 2021, the mob at the Capitol was following an old white supremacist playbook. Just to quote him, he says... Uh, uh, seeing the Confederate flag, uh, battle flag inside the occupied building should have been a reminder that white supremacy has taken this form before. Uh, this is not un-American or alien to who we are. It is the fruit of everything we have ignored since Reconstruction was overthrown in South Carolina in 1876. The author uh, of that piece in the Post, uh, Bernard Woods, uh, also has a new book out, and he's joining us from Baltimore. Uh, Bernard, uh, perhaps you might reiterate, I know this piece was written a couple of years ago, a year ago, uh, January 7th, 2021. Uh, are you still convinced that um, that the riot was essentially a race riot or a, a, an attempt at some sort of racial coup? Yeah, it, that's at least part of it, absolutely. I mean, and what I was referring to is... Um, when Reconstruction was overthrown after the 1876 election, uh, Democrats at the time, but the party of white supremacy stormed the South Carolina state capitol, occupied the capitol for a period of time until federal troops left and the Reconstruction government fell. And that's absolutely what they were trying to do based on the same sense of privilege and grievance uh, that motivated them back in, you know, 150 years ago. And I, I'm sure, like everybody in America, you've been watching uh, the committee. What do you make of it in terms of the thesis you put forward in the Post a year ago about the old white supremacist playbook 
do you think that some of the revelations coming out of the committee only support what you argued a year ago? Absolutely. One of the things, and I, and I think it's going to backfire in a lot of ways on the Democrats. I think they still don't understand what they're dealing with and still refuse to understand in many ways what they're dealing with. Um, and so the, the, especially the revelations that Trump tried to grab the, the steering wheel of the beast uh, and go to the Capitol, I believe that that will inspire the, his followers and the people who, the Proud Boys and people who uh, had stormed the Capitol. I had been covering the alt-right and the various uh, racist movements around Trump since his election. And so I wasn't surprised at all when I saw that happening uh, on January the 6th. And I'm not at all surprised about the revelations that are coming out. I mean, the throwing the, the plate against the wall is, is sort of standard petulant whiteness that you can see in any uh, tyrant um, household on an individual level. But, but really, I do think that his followers, because they see it in the same way that, that the uh, former Confederates did in the Klansmen and the terrorists and after the 1876 election as a redemption, as the 1776 movement, as all of these things. I think that they, they this is absolutely strengthening his base um, support in a way that uh, the committee may not expect. Uh, you use the term petulant whiteness. What, what does that mean? So I grew up in, in Columbia, South Carolina, which had been uh, burned by Sherman, conquered by the Union. And there was always this sense there of both innocence and aggrievedness that, that I feel like just suffused me growing up. And I've noticed it so much since, and especially in, in recent years with all of the um, petulant whiteness on display with uh, people refusing to wear masks on airplanes, people um, acting as if don't tread on me is also means I can tread on you. And I think that is in very many ways what the essence of freedom for white men in this country has been since its founding. I mean, we can look back uh, with the holiday approaching to Frederick Douglass's great speech, What to a Slave is the Fourth of July, um, where he talks about that it wasn't at all freedom in any way that they were fighting for, but independence from the crown. Uh, and actually the freedom to oppress. Historians like Gerald Horn have done a great job showing how in many ways the revolution of 1776 was a counter-revolution uh, bred, especially in the South, out of fear that um, the empire was going to outlaw slavery. And so I think that we see it, you know, and I've seen it in my life in way too many ways, uh, the kind of sense that walking in somewhere, how dare you say that to me? How dare you not let me do what I want to do? And it's in the you know, so-called Karen phenomenon of white people calling the police, even though we're the ones breaking the law, walking a dog illegally and call the police on a black man. Uh, there's a real sense of petulance behind this whole Trump movement and behind whiteness in, in America in general. Uh Bernard, you have a new book out, Inheritance, an Autobiography of Whiteness. Uh, your name uh, on the cover is being crossed out. We'll talk about that perhaps later in this conversation. But this book is out today. Congratulations on the book. 
What are you arguing you. in inheritance that hasn't been said many times before uh, about quote unquote whiteness? What, what are you saying new here? Well, the first thing that I'm doing that I, I think we all need to do as white Americans is looking at the way that whiteness has impacted my own life specifically. So this isn't a corporate uh, human resources training manual. It's not a manifesto. Um, it, it really looks at the what I inherited and, and trying to be in, in both psychological and concrete terms as much as possible from the slavers, uh, terrorists, Klansmen that were my ancestors. Um, and then what I can do about that. And so it looks at whiteness not as uh, something to do with skin, but with a, a system of power, with a conspiracy that was decided that skin, among other things, uh, was going to be a hierarchical system of power, that there is no whiteness without the idea of white supremacy, the hierarchy based into it. And so we need to work towards the... Is that original, though? I mean, that's been said before, hasn't it? Sure. I mean, I'm, I'm not, as I say, I'm not trying to uh, come up with theses as much as I'm trying to look at the way. So I uncover uh, my great-grandfather assassinated a black county commissioner in 1871. And I uncover that crime and uncover the details. His name was Peter J. Lemon, the assassinated commissioner. And so trying to bring him back into the public record and then also acknowledging a crime that had been covered up and looking how that cover up is what created the whiteness that I inherited. And I do think that that is uh, something that hasn't been discussed in the general discourse as much as the way that we all as white people are walking around as the results not only of these crimes like uh, in, you know, creating this really totalitarian system of, of slavery. South Carolina was uh, in many ways, the most longstanding and effective, brutally effective totalitarian system of minority rule that we've almost ever seen. Uh, and so looking at the way that that uh, created the mind that I'm looking at the world with now and the way that that created the minds of Trump and everyone else walking through all the other white people in our world, I do think that is new. Um, you, you talk a little bit about your great-grandfather and his involvement in, in, in the crime of killing a, a black man. You, of course, didn't know your great-grandfather, but you knew your father pretty well. Uh, and, and some of the book is about that. Um, tell me a little bit about your father and about his central role in, in this autobiography. Yeah, writing the book was really intense because he was dying of ALS during the uh, last version, writing of the last version of the book. And so that's a, a really brutal, uh, you know, horrible disease that forced us all to reckon with what's important in life and that sort of thing. And so I was dealing with all of these huge emotions around his death. And also, um, you know, we had a, a great conflict on January 6th with him supporting or, or uh, minimizing and me pointing out the similarities between that and what his grandfather had done. Um, and so looking at what I had inherited directly from him, including my name, was a way to look at the larger past. He grew up in Clarendon County, South Carolina during Jim Crow apartheid. And looking at the way that we had apartheid system in America and the way that that affected him. Um, you know, he grew up in a time where every door that he walked under 
in a public place said white. And then he just repressed that and it kept coming out in, in support of Reagan and support of, uh, you know, claims that Jesse Jackson was the most racist man in America in support of Trump. Uh, I was suggesting that, that Reagan was somehow in, complicit in, in these crimes of South Carolina. I don't see the connection. Well, I mean, when Reagan announced his uh, candidacy, he went to uh, Philadelphia, Mississippi, where civil rights workers had been killed. Uh, he worked with, for instance, Lee Atwater, who then devised the uh, Willie Horton uh, ad campaign for his successor, Bush. But what Atwater said about the Reagan campaign is that you, they don't say the N-word anymore, that that's not effective. So you, you become silent about race. You cover it up again, whiteness. And instead, you talk about busing. And instead, you talk about welfare queens. And instead, you talk about all of these code words. They, along with Nixon, but they really devised that sense of code words that white people created to avoid talking about whiteness. I mean, we can see right now with the backlash to CRT and to the 1619 Project, how dangerous it still is for so many white people in power to even discuss the history of whiteness at all. I, I want to come back to this because I'm not convinced, but let's talk a little bit more about your relations with your father. What sorts of, yep. did he see it? I mean, how, how, try and get in his head. How did he think of you as a rebel, as someone who sold out? What was his was he disappointed, angry? How did he think of you? He wasn't. He was bemused, perhaps, uh, but he was proud. At one point, um, I wrote something about the racist alt-right, and Rush Limbaugh was uh, mocking me on his show. And that was one of my dad's proudest moments, both because Rush Limbaugh, who he admired, was talking about me. Um, but he also knew that it would uh, that, that he was hating me would make me happy. He He valued reporting a lot he valued books a lot especially books on tape and so he was he knew we were opposite he went along with me to do a, a, a lot of the research on this and we liked arguing with each other and so um for him he was proud of me more i would say than uh, at least as, as an adult than i was of him i struggled a lot more with where he was in his life well, well, where's the uh, name from baynard you you know, you make a big play of crossing out your name on the cover of the book. Um, uh, and although the name is still obvious, uh, uh, you and, and, and according to the, uh, the book, uh, your publisher, uh, you, you strike a name, uh, you, you strike through your name as a way of acknowledging and condemning the crimes of from those he inherited the name. So you're, you're crossing out your father. What was your father's name? So I, I'm a junior, so I, I got his name directly. So um, Baynard was the name of your father too. So are you, are you divorcing yourself from your family, from your father? I mean, he's no longer around, but is this a, a form of divorce, of separation? No, uh, although it may be a form of... Um, it's an attempt to reconcile with them in some way, I think. I, I look at my family and think if someone in a previous generation had tried to deal with these things, then perhaps we would be in a better place now. I began this when Dylan Roof um, went to Charleston and massacred nine black churchgoers. Um, 
And he grew up 10 miles from me and my family came from near Charleston. And so I realized at that point, had I done something earlier in my life, then a confused white kid who looks up whiteness online might not just be brought to the racist who radicalize. And we saw the same thing with Peyton Gendron, the Buffalo shooter. Um, and so in a way it's saying, it's giving my family a chance to um, recognize what our history is and move beyond that instead of well, being wrapped in the uh, In your family in South Carolina, Baynard, to a book you've written about your own life in which you crossed out your name. Is there disappointment, anger, understanding? I'm not sure yet. Um, I gave early copies to all of my family. And, is your mother still around? Uh, she is. She is. How, um, she, uh, how does she feel about it? She's she's all right with it, I think. Um, I mean, about the the name part, she understands about the, you know, for anyone who's the subject of a book, uh, her being depicted in it in as much detail as she is, it's uncomfortable for her a little bit. She's a private person, but the, and we disagree on politics as well. Did you ask any, did you ask her permission to write about her before you wrote the book and published it? I did not. I told them they, they were aware. My dad went with me on research trips. At the end of his life, he was like, did it make the book when a story would come up? And I had told him all my life, uh, you know, one of these days I'm going to write about this. It's, that's all I wanted to do was to write. So they were well aware of it. Um, but they, no, I, I didn't ask. Uh, I but didn't it, ask. Bernard, you share, you share the blood of your parents, of your father. You share your father's name. There must be something in his history or the history of your community which has led, led you to where you are. Couldn't you find something more positive? I mean, I acknowledge and I, I'm the last person in the world to defend the behavior of whites in the South. But there must be stuff in your community which are more, are more positive, which you can find to building bridges rather than crossing out your name and divorcing yourself from a tradition which has, has lasted two or three hundred years. Well, I think when that tradition is a totalitarian tradition, um, uh, let's be. Uh, what do you mean a that's a that's a that's an odd word to use. What do you mean totalitarian? You mean in an Arendtian sense? Yeah, very much in an Arendtian sense. Um, but but even in many ways, even more extreme than than uh, the twentieth century examples that that she writes. More so extreme about. than the than the Nazis. You have such, in South Carolina, uh, you have such, and especially in the communities where my dad's family is from, like Edisto, you have such a small white minority using just such brute force to exert absolute control over the majority, the vast majority. I mean, even when it came to Jim Crow, which was, was certainly um, an amelioration of, of the horrendousness of the, the slaver regime, the Nazi... Uh, legal scholars found that that was too extreme that they weren't going to go as far as far as the jim crow in uh the southern united states so i i do think it is in many ways uh something that we we southern white people especially but white americans need to be much more like germans saying never again rather than the south will rise again which is what but i was what raised say on. To a white person for example who's watching this and saying and the vast majority of white Americans watching this, I think, will fall into this camp. That my relatives, firstly, aren't from South Carolina. And secondly, 
Uh, they weren't even in America during slavery. They didn't show up until 50 years ago or 70 years ago, even after Jim Crow was mostly put to bed. Um, and that this idea of explaining all behavior, so if someone behaves badly, if some white person behaves badly on a plane, refuses to put their mask on, which you're absolutely right, but I'm sure there are people of other skin colors doing the same thing. You can't always bring it down to whiteness, can you? Well, I mean, this country was founded on whiteness as a conspiracy of power, that we will value these things and power will be invested in them. And so certainly, as with all conspiracies, I've been a, a court reporter for a long time, and with all not conspiracy theories, but legal conspiracies and federal law especially, um, you don't have to be there at the inception of a conspiracy to be part of the conspiracy. Is this a formal, what you do have to do is denounce what it. What conspiracy is, though? Was it a formal one where a lot of whites met in a secret room, or was it just sort of unspoken? I mean, it was very much spoken and codified in the law for um, a very, very long period of time, and it's still codified in uh, many of our social behaviors and in the enforcement of the law. And so... Um, but yeah, I think that that as recently as the disparity between uh, powder cocaine and crack laws is part of that conspiracy. And that the way that right now in Baltimore, where I'm sitting, it is absolutely divided according to the apartheid standards set in redlining in 1911 that were exported from here to the rest of the country. And policing is different in white neighborhoods than it is in black neighborhoods. That conspiracy is absolutely still happening. Uh, and not just in the South, in America. And right that's now. the totalitarianism, and, and this is your word, that's the totalitarianism that you're describing. The, the race division in America is a totalitarian conspiracy. I, I don't believe it's totalitarian still at this point, though we're moving quickly back in that direction. But um, certainly up through, I mean, we had no election uh, until after the Civil Rights Act, you know, only a couple of years before I was born. That would be recognized by the UN. Um, there are no elections in any southern states that were free and fair elections, and we're we're quickly moving back to where that will probably be the case again. And so there's been a very in this country's history there have been very brief um, experiments with multiracial democracy, but they've been Reconstruction era South Carolina. And to go back to your earlier question, a great many heroes involved in that movement, both white and black, as uh, scalawags, carpetbaggers, um, were really creating, they created public schools here, we're really creating a multiracial democracy. And there is a lot uh, that we can look towards um, and a lot of heroes that we can draw inspiration from. But we also have to acknowledge the debts that we owe in order to do that. Coming back to my question about digging up some value from your community, your history, your family. Is there anything? I, I, I mean, I rather like your name, Baynard. It's an unusual name, even if you've struck a line through it. Um, what, what can we learn from your family to move forward rather than casting we, accusations of one kind, which many of which I, I, I'm not disagreeing with you. I think some of it's true. I'm not quite sure I go quite as far as you, but certainly the history of America is essentially the history of bad and unjust race relations. Um, but don't we need to look more positively, creatively into what you inherited from your autobiography? What did you learn as a boy growing up from your father, who's no longer around, who you speak quite warmly of now, and your mom, that can be used? You must have learned something because now you're on the front lines of this struggle. 
Oh, absolutely. I learned a, a great deal from them, but I also learned this sense. I was raised with the sense of pride of being Southern and pride of rebellion and, and uh, the Confederacy rebellion being tied up with that. I took some of the rebellion part and, and divorced it from that, but it took a lot of um, doing to, to separate that from the kind of rebellion of the people that you see, um, you know, that, that you just showed on the screen busting into the Capitol. It's only right. but not everyone who has pride in their Southern heritage, you know, takes part in a, in a, in a violent coup and carries a Confederate flag into the White House. No, but every white person who takes pride in their Southern heritage is misguided in that pride. And that is why I, or most, maybe not all, um, there are very few Southern abolitionists and stuff, and, and there is pride in that. But the reason, the purpose of the strike through with the name is that I was taught to have pride in those names and pride in that past in the same way we were taught to have pride in Confederate monuments. And as a reporter, I realized that a Confederate monument was standing unadorned, unrecognized above my stories and that I hadn't recognized it. So it's partly as a reminder to me of my ethical obligations so that my nieces and nephews and those in the future may be able to find a positive ancestor in their lineage. So what would you like your nieces and nephews and perhaps one day children to learn from this book, Inheritance? Oh, definitely no children. I, I got a vasectomy, so. Uh, oh, you did? But, Why? Was that, was that partly because of your shame at your, your name and your inheritance? Uh, there's a little of that, but it's also the, the um, climate crisis, the, the ecological crisis. I just couldn't um, fathom and a generally dour bent of mine, I'd say. Uh, you know, I, I would figure at this, yeah, I, I, I figured the future is too hard to bet on with that. Other, other deep psychological reasons probably in the book. Uh, but I, I think that, I hope that in 20 years that my niece looks at this book and sees it as hopelessly uh, racist, because I hope that we have gone so much farther than we are right now in recognizing the race-based hierarchy that this country is still sneaking throughout all of our systems. And I think one of the things we have to do is be willing to talk about it and willing to talk about our own mistakes and be open with our own mistakes instead of pretending that we're perfect. Because if we pretend we've never made these mistakes and we're just all okay, then nothing will ever get better. Uh, the Kirkus the, the Review suggested that um you eschewed discussion of policy solutions and that you instead that white people should look in the mirror. Um, leaving aside the looking in the mirror, um, what are the policies that we need to address and look at? You, you compare addressing this and fixing this with getting rid of the police or the prisons in America, uh, but neither of those seem very realistic either. What should we be doing, apart from writing books perhaps like inheritance and having these sorts of conversations? We absolutely need reparations and we need to figure out um, a vast program that would begin to um, shake up the deeply, deeply entrenched um, racist hierarchy that still dominates so much of our public life. And that, that can be in the form of, of family 
is making reparations here in Baltimore. There's a great example of a paper, the Baltimore Beat, um, is an alt-weekly and a black-led and black-controlled alt-weekly that just relaunched and a white Fountainly foundation that was doling out $10,000 here and there over, uh, you know, that was a million dollar total pie, gave the whole million dollars to the beat so that they could have a paper in, in Baltimore as much as uh, from 25 to 40% of the population doesn't have regular internet access. And it allows a way to circumvent that to have a black controlled paper of a black majority city. What's that going to do with education? I take that and, and I, I don't think anyone would argue against investing public public funds in a, in a black owned, uh, black focused newspaper in Baltimore, Maryland, where you're talking to me from. But reparations, you talk about a, a vast, uh, a, 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 a vast uh, um, scheme of reparations. And I'm using your language again. What, what exactly would that involve? Is it billions of dollars being transferred from white Americans, from the state to black Americans, or all black Americans, some black Americans perhaps who came from the Caribbean, some black Americans who are now quite wealthy? How would this work? Well, I, I don't want to be the one reason I, I shied away from policy, concrete policy solutions is that these should be led by black people. Um, but I, and so why there are a lot of models why? about how, well, hold on, hold on, Bernard. Why, why, why wouldn't it not also be led by guys like you? Well, what we need to do is yeah, be I mean, willing you to acknowledge that you're part of the problem and that your family has committed some terrible historical crimes, including murder and history of racism. Why wouldn't you be involved in the fix? You've written this book. This is part of the discourse. Yeah, I'm not saying that I, I wouldn't be and that I'm not involved in the fix, but I'm saying that it should be black led. So uh, at present, I'm working with uh, George Frierson, a local activist in Clarendon County. Uh, we, we went to the county council to restore Peter Lemon, the, the black county commissioner that my great grandfather was involved in assassinating to the record. We're, we're engaging with a campaign there, but I, it's important that he lead that campaign. And I offer all of the support that I can to him. I led the research, finding out what my family had done. I supplied that to him. But I, it's important for me to not, again, come in and say, here's what we need to do, everyone. I have all the answers because I don't have all the answers. This book is a, a history of errors as much as anything else. And all of the times that I thought I was right as I'm moving towards being better. But I do think uh, we do, you're right that we do need to put billions of dollars. And I think the way to do it, there's some great ideas here. A scholar in Baltimore, Lawrence Brown, wrote a book called The Black Butterfly that has really good ideas about reparations for black communities, black neighborhoods mattering. Um, in a neighborhood, Poppleton here right now, the city's still using eminent domain to take black families' homes. And we can fight for immediate causes like that well, then also fighting to get money and, as you say, billions of dollars uh, put into these black neighborhoods to build up, allow communities to build up themselves. We began with Trump, unfortunately. We all too often begin with Trump. Let's end with uh, a note about the January 6th um, coup. Uh, it's hard to know how many people supported it, but there are still a large minority of Americans who believe in the idea that the, 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 the election of 2020 was stolen. They still have some degree of affection for Donald Trump. He's still probably the 
leading candidate, uh, according to pollsters, for the 2022 Republican nomination. If, if what you want happens and everything gets focused on reparations and on paying back these historic crimes, what becomes of the tens of millions of angry white Americans? Do they just have to leave? How, how are you going to address them, the, the kinds of people that you grew up with, in fact, the kinds of families that uh, you have uh, written an autobiography about, which you've crossed your name out? You, are all these people supposed to just cross their names out and start again? That is one of the places where I am. I do feel like white people need to take the lead in talking to other white people and trying to address this because everything that we're facing is going to get worse. Um, as whiteness is a fuel on all of these things. The climate crisis uh, we saw in the 30s here during the Great Depression, vigilante mobs at state borders. Um, and that was with, with a small... Uh, but are you falling, Bernard, into the same trap as the racists by explaining everything in terms of race? The, the climate crisis, of course, I, I, everybody knows that black Americans and minority Americans have been more affected by the climate crisis than white Americans, but it's still affecting everyone. You can't just explain everything in terms of race. Yeah, I'm not trying to explain everything in terms of race. Class is important. Sex and gender, obviously, are, I mean, they're just huge attacks on trans people, on queer people um, in America, and all of those, and on women in America, and all of those are tied up because, I mean, when we look at these, these Supreme Court decisions that go back to originalism, what they're saying is we need to value the inheritance of 18th century slaveholders more than we value uh, people who are alive right now. And to those 18th century slaveholders, women could not be uh, full citizens at all. Women couldn't vote. Uh, not until in my lifetime could women apply for a credit card without their husbands. Um, so we have this deep inheritance that needs to be shaken up. And race is one of the ways that we can really address that, but it's not the only way. Well, there you have it. Inheritance on lots of fronts by Barnard Woods. Even if he's crossed his Baynard Woods, he's crossed his name out, but we're still using it. Uh, his new book, Inheritance and Autobiography of Whiteness, is just out. It's an interesting book, um, which uh, covers a subject which never seems, unfortunately, to die. Congratulations, Baynard, on the new book. What else should people be reading in addition to uh, your new book, Inheritance, these days? What uh, are you D. reading? Watkins. Dee Watkins had a book. He's a great writer uh, from here in Baltimore. I had a book come out about a month ago called Black Boy Smile. Um, and it's about black joy. So in a way, it's the other side of this, but it's also about masculinity and really coming to terms with a lot of the horrible things he had done in his life um, due to trying to be a man in all of these different ways. Spectacular book. Uh, and then Benjamin Labatut. Um, has a book, When We Cease to Understand the World, that uh, he's a Chilean novelist. It's about um, what happened to the minds of people who were discovering and uh, working on quantum physics and all of the, the wild 20th century, uh, early 20th century theories in physics. And uh, it really is an antidote to a lot of the liberals who are, we need to trust the science, trust the science and forget uh, that science is also Dow Chemical and science is, uh, you know, one of the things that's that's caused a lot of our climate change. And just because 
the Trumpists are against something doesn't mean we have to be for it whole cloth in every iteration. And it's a, a great reminder of the double-edged sword of that. 